Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Leave me a like, drop a comment. Let me know how I'm doing as I bring you this interesting content each and every week. My guest today is author, parent, and economist, Nate G. Hilter. He is the author of the new book, The Parent Trap, How to Stop Overloading Parents and Fix Our Inequality Crisis. Nate has worked as a professor of economics at Brown University and an economist and data scientist in Silicon Valley. In 2020, he served as the lead policy consultant on early childhood and non-K-12 child development issues for Pete Buttigieg's presidential campaign. His work on the origins of success in children has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and a host of other leading academic magazines. His research and child on child development and inequality has been published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics and other leading peer-reviewed journals. Nate, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Edric. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome, awesome. So let's get right into it. Um, what is the Parent Trap, and uh, what motivated you to write this book? <clears throat> well, I'll start with the the second question. I was motivated to write this book because. A number of factors um, came together. When I was a kid growing up, I, I, I'm from Orange County, California. Where are you from, Edric? I'm from the Bay Area. Oh, cool. Okay. So you probably had a similar experience to what I had. Uh, it was this super economically diverse school district. So I had friends whose parents, you know, were very working class, you know, went through unemployment spells, didn't certainly didn't have college degrees, um, were kind of getting by. And I had other friends whose parents were, you know, graduate degrees, surgeons, uh, math PhDs. It was like the full spectrum in terms of people's ability to to tap into extra resources and tutor their kids in their spare time. And I got to see all that up close when I went to my friends' houses to to have dinner with their families. And I loved that part of growing up in Orange County. And the the vastness of these opportunity gaps that I saw up close between some of my good friends and others of my good friends. That really stuck with me. It made an impression on me. And when I, I later on, I went to graduate school and I wanted to kind of learn more about the implications of these kinds of differences that I had seen for lifelong outcomes. And when that was happening, I was kind of fortunate because a lot of these new big data sets were coming online to study the, the, the kind of causal impacts of childhood opportunities and environments on not just like test scores and, um, grade retention and these short-term things, but the long-term stuff, like how much money you make in your career mm -hmm. and um, things like criminal activity and um, unemployment, you know, all the stuff that really does shape the contours of, of your, the economic side of your adult life. Um, and so I got to dive into that, those kinds of research questions in graduate school and just found it all fascinating. And when I was a professor, I taught a class called the uh, called Inequality of Opportunity in the United States based on a lot of this emerging research. Mm -hmm. And that kind of led me to want to write a book because I just thought people don't know uh, some of the really important lessons coming out of this amazing literature. Uh, and you titled the book The Parent Trap, uh, which I don't know if it's an ode to the, the the old comedy films from back in the day, The Parent Trap. <laughs> I guess it was an old Disney film or something like that. But uh, you write about the 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 notion of the parent trap. And I know you it's a very detailed concept, so it's kind of hard to just, you know, course synthesize it into a soundbite but in a nutshell what is the parent trap and um you know what can can people do to address that 
Yeah. So the it's probably is too nuanced, but there, there's a few traps <laughs> that I talk about in the book. The first trap is it's simple. It's just the, the unrealistic expectations that we place on parents. We don't quite realize how big these expectations are. In the book, I, I talk about how we kind of think the, the public K-12 school system is America's effort to level the playing field. And it, it, it gives all kids like college educated teachers and all kinds of equal opportunities. But the way kids prepare for adulthood is they build skills and building skills happens in time. And kids only spend 10% of childhood in, in our K-12 school system. 10%, the other nine out of 10 hours have to be managed and choreographed and monitored by parents. And that means parents are really responsible for like 90% of kids' ability to build skills. Um, so I think I talk a lot more about how that expectation of asking parents to do so many different complicated things to help kids build skills and prepare for adulthood sets up a lot of parents for failure, no matter how much they love their kids and how hard they work and try to do best by their kids. Um, and we can talk more about that trap. The second trap is that I sort of encountered an interesting experience writing the book to try to communicate that we're asking too much of parents and we can do a lot more from a public policy perspective to help that. When I tried to communicate that in early drafts of the book with friends and family, I got this overwhelming feedback that like, man, people are going to hate you. People are going to think that you're judging them as parents. People are going to think that you're saying rich people are better parents than poor people they're going to think you're saying crazy stuff. And I found that I, that was very useful feedback and it shaped how I wrote the book and I took it to heart. And, um, but I do talk about in the book how I think that's a kind of trap and we have to find better ways of talking about these problems that don't scare everybody and alienate everybody. Because if you can't talk about a problem, it's really hard to, to have good conversation about how to fix it. So that's kind of another trap that I think we're all in as parents. And then there's a third trap as well, which is that parents have no unified political voice. If you look at senior citizens, for example, Republicans and Democrats and independents, they all sign up for the American Association of Retired People. And that organization has really gone to bat for them in a nonpartisan way to make sure that Social Security and Medicare stay healthy. You know, these programs are not perfect, but they fulfill the deep needs of all the vast majority of senior citizens in America in terms of making sure these people are not poor and suffering and making sure these people have access to modern medicine. There is nothing like the American Association of Retired People for Parents. Like, you know, you can imagine American Association of Parents and Guardians or something that mm -hmm. unified Republican and Democrat and independent voices. There's nothing like that. And as a result, there's nothing like Social Security and Medicare for kids. You know, like we just rolled back an expanded child tax credit that would help bring a lot more kids out of poverty. And we don't have anything like Medi Medicare for kids, which would help families address the skill development needs that they have for, for their own children. Uh, even something like, uh, you know, child tax credits or, or things like uh, assistance for daycare, babysitting, things like that, or some way to help the parents spend more time with their children. Because the one thing I, when I was reading your book, it, it, it kind of dawned on me, um, yes, parents with resources and uh, connections and everything, obviously their kids will do better in, in the aggregate just because of they have better access to this and that. But the same issues across uh, that I see across socioeconomic lines, um, lack of time to spend with children, um, parents who may not have the skill sets, 
uh, the social, the social issues, you know, drugs, alcoholism, maybe parents aren't there physically, or maybe aren't there mentally for their, for their kids. So some of those things cross economic, socioeconomic lines. So how would you address some of the ways to, to, you know, I guess, close that gap, but at the same time, recognize that parenting in and of itself is not necessarily related, in my opinion, to economics. It's more related to how you interact and how you're able to teach your kid. Am I kind of on to something there? You are, you are. I think the on average, you know, there there are these crude statistical summaries. Right. And on average, lower income families, they, they face more hurdles to set up their kids for success. It's it, It's harder for them to find, pay for, you know, um, oversee all kinds of extracurricular activities, summer activities, early childhood education in like fancy local high quality um, learning environments. It's harder for these parents to set up their kids for the right college application and financial aid and vocational training strategies because they didn't have those opportunities in their own lives. So it's not as familiar to a lot of these people. But to your point, that's on average. Right. There are so, I mean, averages are so crude, man. There are so many lower income families who are like superstars in mm-hmm. setting their kids up for success. And there are so many middle class and upper class families who struggle immensely to set their kids up for success. So the kinds of program that I advocate for in the book to really solve this problem, I, I call it family care because it's kind of modeled on Medicare conceptually, but it doesn't just address health problems. Health problems are the biggest hurdle for elderly people. That's the biggest social problem they face that government can step in and help with for families it's child skill development so family care would address that problem and the way i set it up is with a universal affordability kind of situation so everybody would not spend more than say seven percent of their income on high quality early education or on extracurricular and summer activities and you can set up that kind of universal affordability approach so that everybody can access things and i think once that would pump a lot more money into the child development ecosystem, you'd suddenly see this ocean of new careers opening up for childcare workers, for tutors, for counselors, for coaches, for all for, for nurses, you know, for all kinds of occupations that in many ways are currently underinvested in in our country. Mm-hmm. And I think that and the, the kinds of guardrails that a program like that would have, like with Medicare, you can't spend money on things that don't that like are complete snake oil. You know, right, right. So there would right. be guard guardrails like that. You could, you could, you could send your kid to a um, a high quality religious early learning environment. You know, that's fine. Kids can learn how to read with the Bible or or whatever. But um, you couldn't send your kid to an early learning place that didn't teach reading at all. That wouldn't the the, the family care wouldn't pay for that. And, and setting up this huge new um, ecosystem that would be more vibrant and serving a lot more parents, I think. In addition to making it directly more affordable to people, it would make it more common and more tangible. And I think a lot of families would have an easier time navigating the system. Um, it, it, I just thought of another question as you were talking about that, because at at the end of the day, education is so local, right? I mean, at the at, I mean, there's a lot of local culture that affects children that are raised in a certain community. So, um, on the one hand, I could see that definitely is a is a need and a, and a broad approach to that. But then how would you run and how would you deal with things like some of the social issues we're seeing right now where there are books that parents don't want their children to read or there's this there's this cultural clash going on right now. So 
is is there an opportunity to cut through some of that? Because at the end of the day, in my opinion, it's about the kids, right? You want well-rounded, well-educated kids who can think critically and make decisions and so forth and so on. But given our current political social situation, um, what would be some of the challenges that you see to make this a little bit more universal? Yeah. I love that you raised the question of some of these tensions that are boiling up in, in our K-12 system right now. I think these are distractions. Hmm. I really do. I think if you look at elderly folks, there are differences in end of life care too. Yeah, you know? that's true. But there are differences in, in people's healthcare preferences. Um, some people might prefer a male or a female doctor. Some people might think that um, a doctor who doesn't pray with you is not really on your team. Um, you know, people have all kinds of preferences, but seniors rally around their unified deeper needs, which mm -hmm. are access to a basic level of income and medical care. Mm -hmm. And I think families need to start doing more of that. And, and uh, organizations have to help facilitate that. Um, I mean, if you're a parent and you got family care and it made it, you could now send your kid to a local Catholic or um, Jewish or Muslim high quality preschool. And, um, you know, you could send your kid to a good after school extracurricular program that was like soccer or football or hunting, but it was like professionally staffed, organized, mm -hmm. high quality learning experiences with whatever was culturally relevant to you. I feel like everybody should relax and allow that, you know, mm -hmm. like, let's fine. If, if your family loves hunting and it loves like shooting and if your if your family loves is, in, is if certain types of religion are critical to your family if um you know if you have different preferences and cultures we got to embrace that as parents and just know that we all want kids who can read really well who can handle social conflict and interactions in like a calm way who can avoid substance abuse and stay out of trouble like really we we all agree on like ninety nine percent of what we want for our kids and let's let that other one percent kind of like just leave it up to people and relax. Yeah. Great way to say it. Um, you kind of, we talked about a little bit, but maybe you could just talk a little bit more about the, the concept of the inequality crisis. Uh, maybe you can give us a, a definition of what that is. So people are becoming more aware of this, but America today is kind of where it was in what we call the Gilded Age mm -hmm. in the early, early 20th century when there were the, the, the robber barons, you know, creating these huge companies called trusts and, that's that was the period that led to uh, um, Teddy Roosevelt creating the antitrust, you know, movement and stuff like that. Today we have a similar level of kind of at astronomical inequality, and that takes a couple of forms. One of those forms is about the one percent, and really the the zero point zero 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 one percent. People like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, who have a, like insane, unfathomable amounts of individual wealth. That's not really what my book is about that's kind of a fun function of like technology and the fact that today, if you invent something, you can sell it to like 3 billion people. If, it, right. if you're the leader at something, there are all right. kinds of forces that allow for the concentration of extreme wealth. That's not really the kind of inequality I'm talking about. I'm talking about more like the gap between high school graduates and college graduates. Hmm. And today that gap is enormous. It's like, if you go to college and get a degree, you earn like double what a high school graduate earns. And that's because we haven't been increasing the supply of college graduates as fast as we need to. Over the last few decades, there has been a growing demand among employers for people with the skills that you get in a good college education. And because we make it so freaking hard 
to prepare for and apply to and navigate college in our country. And expensive. And expensive. And sometimes it's even like, it seems really expensive to somebody who is not familiar with the process and focuses on the sticker price. But then if you actually know what you're doing, there's all these tricks and jujitsu things you can do that make it quite reasonable and affordable. Um, So because of all those obstacles we put in the way of people going to college and getting a good degree, uh, the supply has not kept up with the demand. And that has led to this huge earnings premium and income premium for people with college degrees. And so that's what I think is a crisis. And it's leading to all kinds of pathologies. Like it used to be that rich people and working class people lived pretty close to each other. It was, they weren't, they weren't so bifurcated, but segregation by economic class has gotten worse because if some people can only afford a house that costs $120,000 and other people are looking for houses that cost a million dollars, they're not going to live that close to each other. Right. And they're also not going to go to the same restaurants and their kids are not going to play on the same sports teams. And that's, that's kind of this terrible consequence of income inequality, which has come from this, these, the magnification of gaps in childhood opportunity. Um, the other thing I really liked about your book, uh, you did an extensive amount of research on early childhood development programs uh, going back well over 150 years. I mean, you really lay it out there, the history of childhood development programs. One of the interesting people that I, I uh, picked up on that you write about is Cora Bussey Hillis. Mm. Um, who was she uh, and why is she so important to the origins of early childhood development programs? You are the first person who was asking about Cora Hillis. I'm so happy you asked this question. I, I hope somebody picks up on Cora Hillis and does like a biopic on her or something. She's such a cool character. She was this woman who had a, a, a very successful Civil War um, general, sort of a military leader and businessman father. She came from a successful family in Iowa. And she, um, as a mother, she had this terrible but common experience of losing a lot of her children prematurely to illnesses and accidents and things. And this was a very tragic, common part of life back in the early 20th century, where people had people kind of felt modern in some ways, but then their kids would die because there was no medicine, no understanding of like public health and stuff. And she, so she lost three of her five kids and it killed her. She was, of course, very depressed and withdrew from her volunteer activities and, and things for a period of time. But then she found her calling where she felt so frustrated. She was living in Iowa. And at the time, Iowa agriculture was being revolutionized by these public research stations, these weird sort of outposts where people would study cows and horses and, and you know, grain cultivation and figure out how to make healthier, more you know, um, more resilient crops and livestock. And she being a, an Iowa girl thought, why can't we do this for kids? Like we're, we're investing tons of money in scientific enterprise and making sure our cows stay alive, but all of our kids are dying. Mm. Something doesn't add up here. And she decided that there should be a lot more research on this, all the science that was going into agriculture. She wanted to see that reflected in kids too. So she pushed and pushed and pushed to create the world's first child development research station modeled after the agricultural research stations. And there's this great story of her really persevering through adversity. People didn't take her seriously. I think she talked to five different college presidents. One of the college presidents told her, hey, you know, that's a really neat idea. But here's another idea. Would you consider paying for our new church bell? Like, we also need that. And um, she just 
kept going. And finally, she found people who took her idea seriously and founded this, this Iowa Child Welfare Research Station, which was this bizarre place that I talk about in the book. They did all this really interesting research, um, pushing back on prevailing academic wisdom at the time. People thought, you know, did, people's life outcomes were largely predetermined because of their, their genetic, you know, endowments, all this like biological determinism crap that has been such a deep, dark part of our history. And that research station was really pushing back on that in scientific ways. And it, it caused a big stir and it inspired a lot of future research that I try to outline that carried through the rest of the 20th century. Um, you are now the parent of a young child. So how has writing this book and the research you've done affected you as a parent? And what have you learned that is helping you as a parent? A strange part of writing this book was that I did write a lot of it before I became a parent. And I am really proud and pleased to say that becoming a parent didn't make me think, oh, oh, crap, you know, like I was so naive. I think because I took all the feedback I got seriously from people, I, I, I saved my, I spared myself that, that, um, that unpleasant experience. Um, one thing that I do feel more acutely though, is the depth of that parent trap. Like when I'm up late and my kid is having a tough night and he's being totally out of control and he's being, um, I don't know what to do and I'm worried about him and, and I'm so sleepy mm -hmm. and my wife and I are getting in little arguments because we're both impatient and tired. I really feel more acutely now that I, I don't want anybody even suggesting the possibility of judging us. Right. I right. really feel that. Right. <laughs> and so I'm so grateful that friends and family helped me at least try to write a book that didn't shade in that direction by accident, which was never my belief or my intention. But so I, I appreciate that a lot more now. Um, the content of the book is very relevant to, to our, the choices that we make as parents. It has shaped how we shop for um, childcare. It has shaped how we shop for homes. You know, we we looked at a lot of homes and realized some of them were close to closer to highways. And we tried to avoid that because we looked up some research and it seemed like if you can avoid it, you should. Um, it's shaped this our choice of school district, you know, like trying to take that seriously and get smaller classes if we can. And I feel incredibly fortunate that I can I can't act on everything I want. I really can't, you know, and it's frustrating. You know, like we have our kid in childcare right now. I wish we could pay for two more teachers in that classroom. I think that might really help our kid, but that's crazy expensive. Right. Um, so I think it has helped me take some of these decisions seriously and put in a little extra time, which is exhausting and honestly unpleasant, but I, I can't get out of it anymore. You know, sometimes I'll be like, honey, I'm sure it's fine. These schools are all fine. Which we, we, um, you know, the, the area around here is fine. We don't live in like 1992 Beijing. It's okay. Um, but then she's like, well, doesn't your book say that a lot of this stuff matters? And I'm like, <laughs> I guess you're right. And I dig back into the research and I'm like, okay, we, we need to think and maybe take some action here. And so it is exhausting. And that's why I, I wrote an Atlantic article about how exhausting and unpleasant it is, but how I can't really escape doing it. And I, I really want, more public support so it's not all on not as much on the backs of parents uh as we wind down uh i would be remiss if i didn't ask you you actually had an opportunity to work on a presidential campaign uh what was that experience like and uh you know what what did you expect going into 
uh, a full-blown presidential campaign of uh, Pete Buttigieg. That was a great experience. I got connected to the Pete Buttigieg campaign through a mutual friend and um, got to lead their early childhood and non-K-12 policy efforts. So there were other folks working on our public school system, but I was trying to work on that 90% of time outside of our public school system to basically lay the groundwork for something like family care with early childhood, um, childcare access and extracurricular after school and summer programs and vocational and college support later in life. Um, It was a great experience because it imposes a lot of discipline on your thinking. And I actually fed some of that back into the book. You can't just, it's not all pie in the sky anymore. Your numbers have to add up. If you're, if you're like a, a presidential candidate with integrity, like I believe Pete Buttigieg really was, your numbers do need to add up. You can't cook the books too much because uh, you don't want to be fooling the American people. And um, I found that really helpful as a form of discipline. And it was, uh, it was exciting. Yeah, you have to describe things in ways that appeal to people all over the country. You work with really smart people. Um, it was a really positive experience. I, I didn't come away from it jaded or cynical or anything. I thought maybe I got lucky, but this presidential candidate was really trying to advocate for things that he thought would improve life for, for a lot of real people out there. And he just seems like a pretty cool guy. Uh, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you, you want to be, uh, I guess, associated with someone who's just who's just good people, right? Yeah, I mean, I I knew Pete I knew Pete Buttigieg earlier in life through other friends, and he is indeed a cool guy. Um, it's it's surreal to see somebody reach that level of prominence and hear the the maelstrom of public opinion insanity start swirling around them, and think like, oh my god, like you think he might be a bad person because he worked at McKinsey for a year? Like, are you insane? Like, he's such a smart, wise person. Um, he, he loves literature, he loves art and he loves it because it's beautiful and inspiring. There's no game going on. He's like, he's trying to improve the world by marshalling all of his personal resources as best as he can. And I found it inspiring to be around him. And, um, I, I, I know there are other people out there, public servants of that nature, and it's just great to know that they exist. Well, Nate, uh, I want to thank you so much for the time, uh, that you took to come on the show. Uh, if people want more information about you or the book, uh, where can they go? They can go to my website, natehilger.com. Um, they can follow me on Twitter. Nate G Hilger uh, is my, you know, dumb Twitter handle. Um, and my email is on my my website. And you can buy the book at all any any major retailer: Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the others. Awesome, thanks. So, thank you for coming on. And again, uh, this is the Edric Show. My guest has been Nate G. Hilger. He is the author of the brand new book, The Parent Trap, How to Stop Overloading Parents and Fix Our Inequality Crisis. Again, Nate, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your thoughtful questions, Edric. It was a real pleasure to be on your show. You're very welcome. This has been another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Look for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all online streaming platforms. I want to thank you for tuning in, and we will catch you on the next episode. Thank you.